Pop Shield, a long-form discussion podcast about musical topics both past and present. I'm Gabe, and I'm joined as always, or as I always will be, by Dan. Hello. And Darren. Hello. So, some of you might remember us from our previous podcast, the Metaphoric Music Review, rest in peace, where we reviewed new music recommended by Pitchfork, probably the defining music publication of the last 20 years. Sometime around last summer, though, I think we all got pretty fatigued with following Pitchfork, and that led us to start this new podcast, where we get to talk about whatever we want. But it also gave us the inspiration for our first discussion topic today, what ruined Pitchfork? So, why did we get so fatigued? Why, after like two and a half years or something of following Pitchfork religiously, did we uh, lose the faith? And, and not only two and a half, that was two and a half years of like doing the podcast and following it. We've really yeah, been right. f- following it our, uh, you know, whole teenage to adult lives. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think just the like inundation of really bad records was uh, what, what did it for me. What, what about you, Darren? Yeah, I mean, you know, for the better part of a decade, right? I mean, that's this has been yeah. the place, the source that... Um, yeah you know, we would turn to for, for new music. And, you know, we, we ended up doing something that kind of forced us to, to visit it even more so than we probably ever did. And unfortunately the content, the, the music just wasn't there, you know, like, I I don't know about you guys, but it sort of became a bit of a chore to listen to music that just wasn't as interesting as I had hoped for, you know? I I was just going to say exactly that, that it it became a chore. You know, I was, I was like dreading, you know, having to listen to some of the things. And sometimes, you know, you could just tell from the cover art immediately uh, (laughs) that it was going to be like a nightmare of a week where I had to like get really in depth with this record that was going to be terrible. Um, So we're, you know, we're going to try throughout the course of this conversation, kind of interrogate that. But I think we should actually start with, like, do we all agree that Pitchfork is, quote, ruined? I mean, that's like kind of a, you know, hot takey, like clickbaity title uh, intentionally, but um, is it ruined? Are there, is there, are there any merit left? I mean, you know, it, it is a clickbaity title and, you know, we're sort of, <laughs> we're sort of joking. I don't, I don't think it's like ruined, you know, I still check it, you know, it's a great place for news for yeah. like, you know, your regular indie and pop artists and stuff and you know i'll still look at the reviews here and there but uh you know it's more of it it's just lost a bit of its uh grandeur i think yeah i mean i think we'll get into it a little bit deeper here in in a a few minutes but um you know it's really about kind of just losing faith a little bit like yeah i used to turn to pitchfork and the whatever album or you know maybe i hadn't checked in a while so i'll check a couple of the last best new albums you know, I was just like counting on it. Like, I mean, it's one of these albums. Most of them are going to be good, at least worth listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of like changed into like, I don't know if this best new music label really means anything because maybe this won't even end up on an end of the year list. Who, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. No, I completely agree because, you know, <laughs> we'll get into this, but Pitchfork became so central, you know, to my like music life, my young music life that. You know, I had a hard time like believing that something was good if they gave it a bad score, you know, like yeah. I had, had this stink on it where I'd be like, mm-hmm. I really like this record, but you know, Pitchfork gave it like a 6.5. I mean, yeah. Yeah. am I wrong? You know, and like <laughs> it was so, so in my brain that 
you know, now I feel like I, I don't have that same trust. So it used to be like, oh, if it got a BNM and I don't like it, I must be mistaken. I, I should listen more. If it didn't get a BNM and I liked it, I must be mistaken. You know, now I've sort of lost the faith in that. Um, and I think that's where we should sort of turn to, you know, what made Pitchfork so good in the past? Hopefully we actually, actually all agree on that. But, um, you know, why was it so important to us? You mentioned that for uh, our whole teenage life, you know, this was like the place, the door to that opened us up to so much new music. I mean, wh- why does it hurt so much that it sucks now? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> like I mentioned before, it, it just felt like such a a wonderful source of truth almost, you know? Like I'd have I'd have friends who would recommend albums by artists I'd never checked, I never heard of before, and the first thing I would do is say, mm-hmm. "Hmm, this Pitchfork reviewed this, you know, like what yeah, does Pitchfork exactly. think of this? And if Pitchfork thinks it's trash, I'm probably just going to, eh, I mean, whatever, I'm not even going to bother with it. You know, that's, that's just changed like completely. Like that sort of concept just doesn't really happen anymore. You know, I, I don't really look to Pitchfork as a, a source of truth all that much, you know, because uh, is it incredible through- that their new tagline is uh, <laughs> the most trusted site <laughs> for music or whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> ironic. Yeah, I basically completely agree with you, Darren. You know, for much of my life, yeah, if somebody told me to check out a band or if I saw a band was opening for somebody I was going to see, first thing you do, look it up on Pitchfork, you know. did Have they ever got a B&M? If, if they haven't, you know, what's their highest score they've ever got? You know, if somebody didn't at least touch a seven and a half, eight, I, 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 you know, I, I just, I'd call them garbage straight out. If you they're know? not even reviewed on Pitchfork, oh, yeah, it. yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. No, thanks. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it, it seemed like it was at the time the only like centralized, trustworthy thing on like the music that wasn't. That you know, that was outside the scope of like Rolling Stone or you know, just the yes. radio. Just it was like the only place to hear, you know, when a, a band you liked was touring, you know, and even uh, you know, releasing an album or just it was just the only like centralized place to get news about bands that didn't get covered anywhere else. Yeah, that's I, I think that's key is that you know. And I think some people might, you know, think we're being a bit silly and overdramatic. There are a bunch of people who are going to say, oh, Pitchfork always sucked or Pitchfork started sucking in, I don't know, 2005 or something like that. And, you know, sure, maybe for you, but I think that there was like a good decade there where it it genuinely changed my life because I was used to these sort of like authoritative sources. And I think we all were. And the people who say stuff like that are being a little dishonest, but these these sources like Rolling Stone or All Music Guide mm-hmm. um, that, mm-hmm. you know, when something got five stars, it was like a solidified classic. You know, it was something you could just tell it was like this kind of classic rock kind of thing. It was set in stone. And, you know, when I discovered Pitchfork and <clears throat> they would recommend something like, I, for some reason, I always think about Animal Collective's Sun Tongs, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, such a weird 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 album right totally weird um sounds like anybody could have made it and they were saying this is a classic on par with like pink floyd or led zeppelin or something and i was like what you know what how could that be these are just (laughs) this just sounds like a couple of nobodies like around a campfire you know playing weird freaky folk music how could this be on that level and just to have the the balls to say that i mean it, it really blew my mind and I started to be like they're right you know this crazy shit is just as good and 
to me, what's revolutionary about that is that that first indie wave of that early 2000s, like kind of late 90s to early 2000s thing that Pitchfork came up on, made their name with, it had that kind of punk revolution element where you listened to it and you felt like, not only could I maybe do this, like I could make a masterpiece in my bedroom yeah. know, with just like one computer mic. I mean, that was like, that was so, so exciting. I think that's why Pitchfork was so dear to me. They told me that I could be, you know, a legend. Right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I basically felt the same way. Um, when I was younger, like before I, I knew of Pitchfork, even, even though it had existed, you know, you, you didn't really have, outside of like looking through your parents' record collection or, you know, going to Best Buy and, and seeing, you know, a band you've heard of on, you know, the radio or TV or something and having that, you know, Rolling Stone Best Album sticker or something. Right. Like, that was the only way I knew to to find anything and to like, you know, you couldn't get outside of that like easy box, you know, yeah. radio popular world. And like Pitchfork was like a window to this whole other, uh, you know, universe of, of music and stuff that I, I didn't know that existed. I know. You get what I'm saying? Like about that personal element, because like I would go to Best Buy and I would think I'll never make something that is pressed on a CD here in Best Buy. Oh, no, you know, yeah, like, exactly. That's inaccessible. I'll yeah. never be Robert Plant, never in my life, you know? But I could be, you know, like A.V. Tear, you know what I mean? I could I could make a, a what was big back then, a, you know, pure volume page or whatever that website was, <laughs> um, a MySpace, and I could promote this stuff I made in my living room. You know what I'm saying, Darren? Yeah, absolutely. Like, And I, I think that we, you know, back in those days when we were in a band and stuff we found that incredibly inspiring because you know you we started with the the big ticket names like nirvana right and and of course nirvana Mm -hmm. is on pitchfork but within nirvana reviews you you get stuff about you know sonic youth pixies you start to dig deeper it was so easy to just you know find all these different avenues and pitchfork it's almost like the writers knew or they were somehow just so connected to that idea of you start with something that's like kind of mainstream or well-known and then you can kind of like deconstruct it and break it down and find all these different like very similar sounds but stuff that's just not as popular for whatever reason but you know they would make it seem equally as important as you know nirvana or anybody else and no one else was just doing that. There was just not, I, I, I don't know. Like I literally, I could just go to pitchfork because I was like, you know what? I need new music. I need to update my iPod, whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Let me just troll uh, pitchfork for a couple hours. And I would come away with like 10 brand new artists I'd never heard of and all of these great albums. And you know, there's just nowhere else I could have gone to, to do that. Yeah. And something about, you know, like I think you were just sort of getting to, and I think we'll talk more about, but um, when it came to old music as well, it was sort of like, hey, this thing, I don't know if I could think of a random example, like, um, you know, some Mogwai record or whatever that all music gave, you know, three and a half stars and Rolling Stone didn't review. And they're like, <clears throat> actually, um, you know, I guess that wouldn't have been old at the time, but, you know, actually this is a classic, you know, or this album that came out, um, I don't know, in the airplane over the sea. You know, it's like 
I don't know, All Music gave it like four stars. Uh, Rolling Stone probably didn't talk about it. No, it's a classic. It's a 10 out of 10 classic. You know, like well, it's rewriting the history books for people. Well, yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> was but, a, but bad example. <laughs> yeah, they first reviewed it. They gave it a, what, uh, eight, eight point yeah. something, but then they, they bumped it up. But around the time I started reading, it was like they had this body of reviews. It yeah. was kind of like these things that you never heard of are classics. And it was like a new musical history that, that I had missed. But... We'll get back to all this kind of stuff, but what's different about it today? I mean, I, I think we could get into um, their top 10 or their top albums and top songs list from this year as sort of an example, but it sounded like you were going to say something, Dan? Yeah, I think the main thing that's wrong with it um, is kind of, it, it's become the opposite of what we were just talking about. You know, it used to be this window into another world, and now it's just a window into the regular world uh you know the top stories are always about and as much as i love them you know kanye which that would you know that makes the regular news and you know they talk about just all these all these bands and stuff that are you know on the radio or are real famous and you know i feel like they've lost the the you know it maybe i just know all the pitchfork stuff now but it's like you know it's not the not this window to another world anymore does that make sense yeah, yeah, it does. Well, let's, Darren, why don't you, <clears throat> we've got the top 10 of 2018, which, you know, these lists were just published a month or so ago. So, Darren, why don't you read this off for us? Okay, so n- number 10, we had Eve Toomer with Safe in the Hands of Love. Number nine, Tierra Whack with Whack World. Number eight, Low with Double Negative. Number seven, Earl Sweatshirt, Some Rap Songs. Number six, Rosalia with, I'm going to butcher this, El Mal Querer. Uh, number five, Snail Mail, Lush. Number four, Robin with Honey. Number three, DJ Cozy with Knock Knock. Number two, Casey Musgraves with Golden Hour. And number one was Mitski with Be the Cowboy. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think we should get into, you know, get into what you were just saying, Dan, because... I don't really feel like any of this stuff is really getting played on the radio, and yet I do know what you mean. And I should mention some some notable weirdness that might actually contribute to this part of the conversation, but Ariana Grande's Sweetener came in at number 11, just outside the top 10. So that's exactly, I mean, that's, you know, Billboard charts. Cupcake was rated as the second best rap album of the year. That was one of our most hated that was one of the things that made me start to think, should we continue this metaphoric thing? Um, Pitchfork, <laughs> on their list, you know, we didn't get to talk about this, and I do kind of <laughs> regret it, but uh, they backed off a little bit on their insane hype of the 1975 <laughs> by giving them only uh, the 21st best album of the year, although they did give one of their songs the best song of the year honors. Um, there was no Kids See Ghosts on the list which a lot of people liked car seat headrest, same thing. Father John mm-hmm. Misty, Mount Erie, Tim Hecker. Um, a lot of those things got BNMs, but they were replaced mysteriously by a bunch of non BNMs that were uh, kind of popular type of thing. So, you know, what, what do you think about that, Dan? I mean, it's, it's not like exactly radio stuff, but why doesn't it feel as exciting, like a window into this world? Nobody knows about. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not like, well, Ariana Grande at number eleven—that yeah. is—and the nineteen seventy-five yeah, as well, exactly. But but yeah, the the top ten. Yeah, it's not exactly like radio music, but it's also 
you know, it's not it, it's not obscure, really. You know, it's kind of like the the uh, easiest level of indie. I don't mean that to sound like a you know dick. Yeah. Um, even though I am, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you know what I mean. Like it's I, I, Eve Toomer is like the maybe the only like sort of obscure weird thing. Um, hmm. I don't know. Does that make sense? I mean, here's what here's my problem. This list, <clears throat> by old Pitchfork standards, and I don't mean to just be so like, well, old Pitchfork versus <laughs> right. new Pitchfork, but I mean, this just would never have happened. This would never have happened. Ariana Grande would not get no. a single right. mention. Wouldn't even get reviewed. Not an article, not a thing, not at all in old Pitchfork. It just wouldn't have happened, you know? And um, let's let's also clarify that it's a completely ordinary album. It's actually not yeah. good. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Yes, I agree with you. It's very bad. Not to get too deep into it, but you know, I did I did give it a shot after their pretty glowing uh 8.0 review, I think. And same. Yep. It's it's another one of those cases of like Pharrell produced like six of the tracks and Pharrell is really good. So uh <laughs> those are good tracks and the rest are completely mediocre, disposable pop trash. Um I think we'll talk more about uh the pop side of things here. But yeah, continue, Darren. Yeah, and you know, so the thing that really frustrates me by this list is that the the very simple fact that they did just replace a bunch of B&Ms. Like, what does it mean? Right. What does it mean to just be a B&M, you know, best, have the best new album for one week, but then you're not good enough to make it to an end of the year list. I, like, I feel like there has, there should have been some sort of asterisk or like, here's a little update on the review or here's why this album yeah. was yeah. best new music for this, you know, this particular week, but now it didn't make our list because maybe just, kind of lost its you know whatever like i to me as if i was like a brand new you know music listener and i was coming to pitchwork for the first time and i see an album gotta be an m and i don't see it on the list like it just wouldn't make any sense i would i feel like something else should have been said you know by the end of the year to sort of say okay we did give this a bnm originally but like something you know i know and and then, like you said, you know, the Ariana Grande only got a eight or so. You know, it didn't get BNM'd, and it's right. at number eleven. You know, I can see something that's, you know, number thirty something or, or forty something. Yeah, yeah. You know, slipping through, well, but that's, number they, eleven. They actually, have they talk about it? You know, they have like a little miniature review there, so you mm-hmm. kind of get an idea of like, all right, so maybe there's a reason why it didn't get a BNM originally, but now it's on the end of the year, year list. But all those albums that did get a BNM, they don't get mentioned at all. You know, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah, it's a credibility problem, and Pitchfork has always had this kind of going on, in a in a to a lesser extent, but it's just a lot more so now. Where something that seemed like it was supposed to be at a BNM, I guess they're admitting they're wrong about that, or you know, same thing, vice versa. But what it really screams to me, and of course, there's also the issue of like you know, uh, uh, 8.6 will beat like a 9.2 at the end of the year somehow. <clears throat> and I'm okay with a little wiggling and stuff yeah, and things right, grow on you right, and whatever, right. but it, it reeks of this. The, the list is not like a, a, just a straight up ranking. It's more of like, we crafted this list to represent what we want it to represent. And, you know, it's a little, it's a little dishonest and it's, they're trying to make this kind of identity. Now we talked a little bit about it before, but their identity used to be, and we didn't get into this, but you know, it used to be like really against the grain. Like we're not your dad's fucking Rolling Stone magazine. We'll put a review of jet with like a, you know, monkey pissing in its own mouth. And we'll just completely talk, you know, we'll hand out like zeros. We'll give like, 
you know, whatever, like a, a tool album, like a 0. 0.4 or so, you know, they were like really <laughs> against the grain. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then same thing on the flip side where it's like, yeah, this weird, like freak folk album with a, you know, 12 minute, like just basically drone and moaning, uh, track right in the middle of it. You know, that's a 9.5. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's, it was really, really exciting. And now, you know, I guess Dan, you were saying their identity is a little bit more safe. It's a little bit more entry level. Um, but you know, well, I guess we'll get into it, but I mean, what is their identity now? If you had to describe pitchfork is a magazine that blank today, what would you say? Yeah, I don't, that that's tough. I, I don't know. I, I, I think that, the, you know, the, it, it's the lack of identity. It's hard to, it's hard to even come yeah, up with it. That's, that's a good point, actually. Well, and I think that we'll probably get into this discussion when we start talking about the differences of those two subjects that we, we mentioned, uh, or that we're going to mention, you know what I mean? But like <clears throat> before the idea, I feel like if you were a fan of Pitchfork, it didn't necessarily mean that you know, somehow your taste in music was better than others. It was just that you had a particular taste. Like, they were crafting that taste for you. And now they have expanded in so many different ways that you find yourself kind of torn between, like, well, you know, P Pitchfork is still kind of old Pitchfork in some ways because they still do cover, you know, new artists, indie, you know, underground kind of stuff. But then there's all this other stuff that's like kind of flooded flooded the uh, the area that they've allowed in to make it sort of more difficult to navigate right and you get you know the yeah. headlines like like dan had mentioned in that what what does it mean when you have all these new headlines well you're burying the stuff that you would have mm -hmm. been there for you know 10 years ago right so yeah that's that's it's, true. it's almost like an identity crisis at this point yeah, it is a little bit of, you know, I think that the, and we'll get into this, the, the God's honest truth is that it's just hard for one site to be good at everything. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. Pitchfork is, I think, notoriously just awful at at stuff like electronic music, jazz, uh, experimental. They just mm -hmm. have these little token artists. We've talked about this, Dan, where it's just like Kamasi Washington is their jazz yep. artist. You can <laughs> count on him to get a BNM every once in a while and... Um, you know, something like Tim Hecker is their experimental mm -hmm. guy. Um, you know, they just really sort of, they sort of just excel. They used to excel rather at this kind of indie, indie rock thing. And then as they've, I think what you're getting at, Darren, is they've moved a lot of like pop and rap and stuff into it. And it creates this kind of scattered thing where you're constantly like, okay, so if I'm looking at Pitchfork's like body of work, um, you know, something like Arcade Fire is as good as Cardi B. Um, you know, it, it's like disorienting. You know, Casey Musgraves is as good as, you know, the microphones or Neutral Milk Hotel or something. It's like right. it, it creates this really weird thing. And, you know, it's the same thing with some of their and I want to talk about this a little bit later. But, you know, some of their they do these like. 70s lists best album of the 70s best album of the 80s and they're just kind of like mixing you know like jazz with um you know like soul and funk and r&b with pop and rock and you're just like how do you say that that you know jazz album is like a, a one spot better than that <laughs> you know dance pop album it's yeah. I, it's like right. bizarre um right. but 
I think what we're we're getting to, I think like the biggest part of this conversation is I've got a couple culprits here of what's gone wrong with Pitchfork, and we're we're already kind of getting there, but maybe you guys will have more. But I think the the first one is uh, poptimism. Okay, so for people who are not you know in the know, um, these are sort of critical movements. There's rockism and there's poptimism. So I'll read like the first paragraph of the Wikipedia page on it. Rockism is the belief in certain values um, thought to be intrinsic to rock music, uh, making the genre superior to other forms of popular music. A rockist may also be uh, someone who regards rock music as the normative state of popular music. Poptimism or popism is the belief that pop music is as worthy of professional critique and interest as rock music. Detractors of poptimism describe it as a counterpart of rockism that instead privileges the most famous or best-selling pop, hip-hop, and R&B acts. So I think we can all agree that Pitchfork has a a strong poptimist bent right now. How do you guys feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they definitely do. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing, you know? It, having a raucist uh, bent can, you know, you kind of want to be somewhere in the middle, I feel like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it, there's nothing wrong with being more inclusive, right? Um, right. You know, I, I think... <clears throat> You know, I'll, I'll pick out an artist like like Robin. Like you know, Pitchfork right. has has sort of adored Robin, and she she's right up there in the sort of like Lady Gaga and Katy Perry in terms of like content, like the, yeah. the music itself, right? Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of popularity, it's it's wildly different, I would say. But um, you know that that I feel like makes sense. I mean that the to discover somebody like Robin, oh, you know, a pop artist who's actually not like popular played on the radio (laughs) right it's like that's kind of interesting this is sort of the pitchfork that i love right but then they throw ariana grande like a number 11 on on their end of the year list like what are they trying to say with that sort of with that sort of thing like yeah you know to me old pitchfork would probably be a little more on the rockism side right yeah i mean and new pitchfork is now even is is not in the middle like you mentioned Dan they're 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 leaning more and more poptimist right yeah that's actually a really interesting point that i hadn't thought of that poptimism could be just fine if pitchfork was still an alternative music website and that there was alternative pop yeah. that they would be arguing is worth your time you know yes. i think everybody would be totally on board with that you know, the, the issue with Poptimism is that I think it's a great idea in theory, but it can like go wild because people are dismissive. They, they have these certain like biases and assumptions that make them really dismissive of great music, right? So you can think about something like, God, I don't know, um, disco or something like that. Mm. And you can be like, well, that's just for fun. It's repetitive. It's for dancing. Yeah. Yeah, it's mindless. It's just it's just for dancing. It's just for fun. You know, like those aren't artists, capital A artists, you know. <laughs> um you know, and and there I guess there's an argument to be had, uh, but I would say that you would be depriving yourself of a ton of incredible music if you just looked around at what was popular, what was like pure, what seems like pure mindless pop, and just dismissed it all. Right. And you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and I, you know, I think of like Lady Gaga as as one of those artists who 
kind of qualifies as like mainstream dance music. You know, everybody kind of knows it, right? But at the, you know, if if I were to just completely say, you know what, I, you know, too many people listen to Lady Gaga, I'm not gonna not gonna partake in that, right? Um, we would be missing out on, you know, some of the best pop music that's out there, right? And that, you know, that is a more raucous or rockism type of stance, right? And is that the right thing to do, just to completely shun stuff like that, or is there another way? that you can engage that type of music but not have to like feel like well we have to critique the entire album because that's how we critique music how is lady gaga's entire album not just well, that, the that's, song that's great that's know? an assumption right that's 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 another one of these raucous assumptions that that i think people like pitchfork are trying to say that we all have and we need to sort of shake loose of is we value things based on like what rolling stone taught us you know that mm-hmm. you know sort of personal you know, Bob Dylan song, you know, write You write your own lyrics They're They're from your mind. They're like a window into you as like an auteur. You design all the music and stuff like that. You know, it's your vision. Um, you know, the Beatles, another great example. Um, and if you aren't doing those things, if you sing somebody else's songs or you use like the, whatever the Motown studio band, um, mm-hmm. right. you know, you don't have like the agency that, the the Beatles have or whatever, um, you are sort of disposable trash. You know what I mean, Dan? Yeah. Or and God forbid you uh, you know do anything electronic. Um, you know, it's just just right. computers making the music. Or you know, God forbid you sample. You know, something. Right. 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 Yeah, that's not art. That's always like the you know, there's art and then there's pop, and that that's always the divide. And I think it's very worth breaking that down and really looking hard at that. You know, some of my problem, though, is that, like I said, it can go too far. I I really, there's a lot of mainstream pop that I think is worth singling out. We could say that, like, Beyonce's Lemonade was actually Mm -hmm. a good record. Um, But there's there's stuff like, you know, Ariana Grande. I can't really tell the difference between her and Katy Perry. And Katy Perry is not good. And Pitchfork doesn't (laughs) say she's good. Um, And there really doesn't seem to be much of a difference. Um, Lady Gaga, I remember you know, around whatever, 2010, 2009, um, thinking that bad romance song was like the most incredible thing I had ever heard. And that was kind of before Pitchfork went Poptimist. And I remember thinking mm-hmm. like, why doesn't Pitchfork review this? Like this is, this is song is incredible, you know? Right. <laughs> um, it's just as good as, as all the indie stuff I like. And I mean, if you could strike a balance, it would be, I think a really important thing. Um, another aspect of this though is, that I think is related is the sort of, you know, we were talking earlier about Pitchfork's lists, like seventies albums, eighties albums, nineties albums. Um, they sort of are redoing all these lists and like optimizing them. And isn't it weird where you see stuff like, you know, Nina Simone is better than, you know, like any Bob Dylan album or something like that. Yeah, that that last uh what was it the 70s that last one? It was it was really odd, you know? It there was all kinds of that stuff. Not to say that Nina Simone isn't great, she is, but right. she's no Bob Dylan, you know. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's one of those assumptions, and I want to know are they necessarily bad assumptions? Because what I want to say is Nina Simone cannot be as good as Bob Dylan because you know the 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 albums that they put on the list and they put a lot of them you know her Aretha Franklin they stood out to me because 
they are your typical kind of, there are a couple masterpiece songs there. And then there's a bunch of stuff that the label wanted where there's like a couple covers, a couple sort of weak ballads. And they're just, they were recorded just all at different times. Nothing was put together to be an album or anything like that. Um, just sort of slapped together and um, incredible songs on there. Incredible, a couple incredible songs, but not a good album, you know, yeah. capital A album. So these raucist assumptions that the artist needs to write everything, they need to think on a big conceptual level about the presentation and the album. They go to write songs and they say, these songs belong together in this one big piece. You know, Pitchfork would want to say that those are raucous assumptions we should throw out the window, but should we? Yeah, I don't think we should. I, uh, you know, if anybody listened to the, you know, old podcasts and stuff, I I like a, a nice packaged record if you're making a record you know like i yeah. I, I like a good you know good sequencing I, you should think about all of that you know we we always talked about you know the the sequencing of the record being bad you know or, or being great and i i love that like world building of like an album sounding like one piece of work you know like each each song is a, is a part of the painting i like that a lot personally so i think that does qualify it Filthy rock. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I mean, I was going to say, like, is that is that something that has just changed? You know what I mean? Like, I, I th- are the times changing? Like, is that is that an old idea? I, you know, I think it, the times it, are changing, but I'm going to be that that old boomer that's sticking with it. You know, I I'll, well, I'll I mean, because where do you draw the line? Because you'd be <laughs> right. like, okay, Drake's last album was so long, he obviously didn't give a shit about the pacing or anything. It was just to put as many songs on Spotify as possible yeah. and get as many streams as possible, and maybe some of them would become hits. And it makes sense to me to say it is thus a bad album. But if you wanted to go full-blown Poptimist, you would have to say, no, 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 no. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. That's very raucous to say that. Doesn't matter. Um, doesn't matter if the album is bad. It's still good. You know, like, what the fuck are you talking now, about? Now, yeah, right? I, I'm like, going... Everything, everything is suddenly good now. Like, <laughs> yeah, now you're, things now that you're are... Not taking, you're not taking any sides at all. Yeah, things that are bad are actually good. <laughs> That's the Poptimist mantra, I think. So so let me ask you guys, because this is something I've always kind of had on my mind, because... Again, I think when I was younger, I was probably much more of a raucous type of person, right? Sure, I, w- sure. I really was that person who was like, well, Britney Spears doesn't write a single song. She can't right. play any instruments, right? right? Yeah, yeah. She could never be as good as Bob Dylan. But then, you know, as as I started to get into, like, hip-hop and stuff, and you read the liner notes on a lot of these records, Kanye West, whatever, you see that he, like, writes songs with a lot of people. Like, there's a lot of collaboration, yes, groups yes. of people that are involved. And you start to wonder, you know, I mean, I think the assumption is that still the main artist, Kanye, whoever it may be, um, had had the bulk of the of the production there. But do they? And we don't really know. I mean, a single song could have 20 collaborators mm-hmm. on it, and we right. don't... It's not like the liner notes indicate, well... You know, Drake wrote like five lines here, whatever. Yeah, like, exactly. Really no. So, so how does that does that sort of change how hip hop artists are looked at, or are they just kind of somehow above that I, uh, because of their persona or whatever? I, I used to think, you know, the same way you just described when when I was younger and stuff too. And hip hop is also what changed that for me. And you know how I think of it now, it's like. You know, if you say Stanley Kubrick made 2001 Space Odyssey, like, he didn't do 
everything in that. You know, he's just like the right. one who's in charge. And, you know, mm-hmm. especially with hip hop, and, and I, we talked about this with Kanye on, on the old podcast and stuff, like he is like the, the director or the, the conductor of this like, you know, symphony of, of, of other people. And I, I think like, uh, you know, when, once I realized that, it, it, it makes me not care so much, you know, but also it, I guess it sort of depends on the music. If it's, if it's something simple, like, you know, a guy playing, like if Bob Dylan's, you know, albums weren't original music, you know, that would maybe lose a little, uh, sincerity. Does it, you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's yeah, the type I mean, of I, music, I think you know, it's, it's the auteur theory, which, I do kind of subscribe to, I think, which is that, you know, good art has to be like a, a, a single person, the auteur, their, their vision, you know, and you can use a whole team to help construct your vision. Um, or you can do it completely on your own, like, you know, microphones or something, record every little piece. But once it's this kind of, um, assembly line, kind of thing like it becomes a product rather than a piece of art and you know that's all i think ariana grande is now maybe you would argue that she's you know she's kind of like a beyonce light where she's really in charge of this branding and she's done this amazing job creating this persona and stuff but um you know i i think there's there's something different where you know maybe uh you know jay-z or something he didn't make i don't know any um any beat or anything like that any of the music on maybe suggested samples i don't know but like on the blueprint but the blueprint is such a unified you know picture of him at that moment you know the things he's thinking about the things he's going through everything serves his vision he picked the beats you know it's not like somebody it's not like the record label said here are your you know 12 beats or however many songs are on that now get to get to rapping you know he (laughs) <laughs> I'm sh- I'm sure he probably went through a hundred beats, you know, a li- listening hundred beat makers. Yeah, yeah, know? exactly. And, and then he came out with you know, however many tracks are on that record. Don't uh, you know those many beats and that, you know, he put together the picture. And I, you know, I, the I, thing I, too. So I think that's important. The like uh, you know the so, real rockedest thing uh, of you know Led Zeppelin. They played all their instruments. They wrote all their songs. Right. Whatever, like. They didn't engineer that record, you know. I I don't think people right. r- realize you know how much is behind the scenes when making a record on these like you know rock things that people feel like they did all by themselves. Uh, right. You know, they really didn't. Right. Well, I mean, I think bands like Led Zeppelin and the Beatles are are fairly safe because they already qualify as like well they wrote their own music they played their own instruments yada yada. But but here's what I'm curious about because I hear you guys kind of you know Gabe you mentioned the whole vision thing but what I really want to know is I want to draw this comparison between art and then specifically music so like with art you know is the only good high art art that is painted or sculpted you know if you were to say yes to that then like with music is the only you know high art music music that is played on like actual instruments and in the whole songwriting thing like can ariana grande be a beyonce can she be ever be on par with a bob dylan record can that ever even happen um i mean i think that 
you know, we get into that, that, you know, with the, with, when it comes to art and stuff, obviously it's a little bit out of, outside of my wheelhouse, but you know, something like, you know, Andy Warhol or something is, you know, he's playing with the idea, you know, he's sampling quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And he, you know, is playing with that idea of like, what is art? Right. And I think a lot of the good, a lot of good, like pop, you know, I th- always felt like Lady Gaga was doing this was also kind of similarly playing with like this sort of self-conscious pop star thing. Um, and there's a lot of room to be really interesting there. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's necessary. And I think it's a, it's a difficult question when you ask, could Ariana Grande ever be as good as Bob Dylan? Um, because, you know, instinctively I say no. And I, I think that that's, those are those sort of rockest assumptions that are really hard to shake loose. Mm-hmm. Like we said, though, I think some of them are good assumptions to have, but they are the kind of things that that make you just dismiss like disco as a whole or just mm-hmm. miss out completely on like, you know, whatever house music, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, do I think a pop person could ever, you know, make something as good as or close to as good as Bob Dylan? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, Kanye um, qualifies, you know, as a pop artist. And I think My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is, you know, in the same realm as Bob Dylan and, uh, you know, the Beatles and stuff. So I, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's fair. Does that make sense, Darren? Do you disagree? I don't. I don't disagree. I mean, I would obviously agree when you mention like Kanye West, but I. I also don't really think of Kanye West in the same league as any of the, you know, other pop, you know, artists that we've sort of mentioned, Lady Gaga, you know, even Katy Perry, things like that. Like I just, you know, I, I wonder if there is like just some sort of do you mean like a of mu- like like not a hip hop artist, like a a pure you know bubblegum pop artist is that is that sort of what you mean like could somebody like that basically basically yeah basically because i I mean i think kanye is just such a he's like a rare example because he's sort of like he's like bridging a gap that most artists just haven't really done you know yeah they're either strictly hip-hop or strictly pop i think this kind of leads us to the the dirty and dark part of of the rockist uh versus poptimist debate um which is you know, issues of race and gender because rock calling somebody a rockist is kind of like calling them a racist at that point, at this point, or a sexist, because part of what's baked into that. And I think this is, is very accurate is that, you know, all the things we've been talking about, it's like women and people of color don't make real music. You know, that's been yeah. like the sort of the gut thing that has, that rock has, really screwed itself up doing, you know, um, not taking those people seriously. And, you know, I, I think that that is certainly extremely troubling and something that I try to be conscious of when I, you know, instinctively think that, you know, Ariana Grande sucks and can never be good or something. I'm like, am I being, you know, am I having this kind of like sexist reaction? Like she's just like a, not just a woman, but she's like this young, pretty girl or something. How could she be intelligent? You know, it, I, I think you guys would agree, right? It's like important that we try to avoid doing those things. And Pitchfork's Poptimist bent has probably done a lot to repair some of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see it repairing it, you know. I mean, 
a good portion of the uh, top ten was was women. Uh, I, right. You know, I, most of it, really, even. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I could see some some repair happening. And if you think about it, you know, it's like they're doing the same. You know, when when we were young and we were and they were just like, "Fuck you!" Animal Collective is just as good as Led Zeppelin. We were like, "Wow!" You know, mm-hmm. that's awesome. And now they're kind of doing the same thing where they're like, fuck you, Ariana Grande is just as good as Father John Misty, you know? Yeah. It, it's a similar, you know, I'm trying to find the positive here. You know what I'm saying, Darren? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, like I mentioned, maybe this is, the times are changing here, and, you know, this is Pitchfork pivoting and attempting to sort of change th- their original you know, stance on a lot of stuff. Um, and obviously, you know, Pitchfork is not a single, a singular entity that's comprised of dozens and dozens of writers that have yeah. changed over the years, right? I mean... That's true, that's true. I mean, but it's still, they try to they try to craft, you know, they have like some sort of editor-in-chief like like that yeah. sort of crafts this identity, you know. And that you identity they have like an changed. agenda? Like they almost set out to... I think so. I, th- I really yeah. do. Because yeah. my, my pitchfork theory, in short, is that the stuff we were talking about before, is that was their identity, is this kind of indie music, this DIY, like you could do this at home kind of stuff. And then when indie sort of reach, started to reach like peak popularity, you know, it's like Arcade Fire wins a Grammy and stuff like that. Um, you know, they made this bold move that they must have thought long and hard about to give my beautiful dark twisted fantasy a perfect 10 and that was like the moment that i think everything started to change where you know because before if it was about hey anybody could do this you know my beautiful dark twisted fantasy is like no one but fucking kanye (laughs) west could do this you know it was the literal opposite of what pitchfork had been and what the the early 2000s music had been and ever since then we've been in this thing where Everything that they, B&M, this entire list, this top 10 list here, is all like, you're supposed to be in awe at its, you know, at its like professionalism, at its size, at its sheen, you know, lo-fi is so, so out of style. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is a good, you know, that, that is the like turning point, you know, for the good or, or the bad. Um, yeah. I don't know. And then another note on the, you know, because um, I think there's more to say about the social aspects, the diversity aspects. But, um, you know, thinking again, preparing for this episode, looking back at some of those best albums of the 70s list, best al- albums of the 80s list, you know, they, they do create this really interesting thing. Like we were talking about where, you know, Nina Simone is right on par with the Beatles and Bob Dylan. And, you know, I think they're trying to say, and I think it's a, it's a fine thing to say that, you know, the only reason you don't think of her as an artist capital a artist on their level is because of the kind of racism and sexism that's baked into this these raucous attitudes now what i would say is that like we were like we were talking about earlier her albums are not actual albums they're just like a uh, the label just put together some of her songs and some of them are masterpieces and some of them are kind of throwaway filler and all of her albums like that uh are just like that and I think those are like the good raucous assumptions. And I also think it's like a hard thing for me to articulate. I was thinking about it today that if you looked what they're kind of doing is like revising history. Okay. So if some like young chap, my age, when I first discovered pitchfork 
took a list look at their like best albums of the 60s list they would think like wow i guess there was no like racism in the 60s because <laughs> this is like a really diverse list and in some ways that's good but in other ways the thing is it was super racist and part of the reason why nina simone never got to be bob dylan is because she was never given like the freedom and the agency to like pretend like she got in a motorcycle accident disappear for two years and you know come out like just go country for a couple albums if she wanted or make a double album of crazy surrealist shit you know what i mean like she actually didn't have those opportunities same with like aretha franklin and all those people and so ironically you're kind of like you're kind of there's something that's like very problematic about trying to retroactively fix it those albums are not as good and if you like what's worse pretending like they are or saying the reason they're not as good is because it, it's like the disadvantage do you give them a handicap you know like you know a couple extra points because right 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 it's like you're you're rating the performance and less of you know yeah songwriting and the album I, structure yeah. and all this kind of stuff i think you just have to you know uh, obviously you know that that that's bad and everything but like if you if you want to make a list of the best albums, you have to you know this album is better than that album, and you I, I don't think you have to look at like what's around it. I think you can just say this album is better than that album. You know. So would would the would the proper thing to have done perhaps would be to like get rid of like a ranking order and just, and just say, a, like a list if you like were interested in records. the 60s yeah if you're interested in the 60s here are the albums you should be listening to. i, I honestly i think that that they're all i think that is a better idea for for basically well, anybody making these kind of lists because you know you brought this up earlier gabe like when you put obviously you have to bring up jazz records when you talk about the 60s or or, or whatever but they're hard yeah. to it's hard to say like is you know this coltrane record as good as dylan you know it, it's apples and oranges right. it's two different s- styles um so yeah when you make a list of just like you know here's a hundred records that existed in the 60s that you should hear i think that is a good way to do it but they don't do that because that's not as clickbaity and, and every you know everyone wants to yes. argue about them, and we'll get one. to that we'll We'll get into the to the clickbait mm-hmm. aspect of the short. There are just a couple other questions that I have about this, which are, you know, so obviously the diversity in music thing is good. I don't. I feel sort of skeptical about trying to fix the past in the way I was just talking about. But going forward, I think that it's it is a nice idea to say that, you know, let's get rid of these biases that make you not take like women artists as seriously or whatever. Um, it can go crazy though because. You know, the what it comes down to a lot is that they're praising, in my opinion, cultural impact over quality. And I think a lot of people have noticed that Pitchwork reviews have become like a lot less about the music and more just about like the surrounding context, you know? Mm-hmm. So somebody like Cardi B, she's basically, you know, I think she got an 8.6 on her debut album and they called it like a classic and everything. Um, you know, they gave an 8.6 to Cardi B as a, as an icon, basically, you know, didn't matter what that album sounded like. Um, that's a problem, right? Yes, definitely. Cause, cause I agree, you know, that album, that album was surprisingly good, but yeah, it wasn't a classic. What would they say? The pantheon of great rappers or something, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, right. 
you can't give her that off off of just that record alone. Um, and then things like like uh, Kids See Ghost, you know, that the review for that mentions Donald Trump more than it mentions Kid Cudi, right, one of the people right. on the actual record, you know, and I and, you know, they give that and yay. I think both of those were left off the end of the year list, especially Kids See Ghost, um, because of Kanye tweeting about Trump more more than anything else, you know, and, and the crazy shit he gets up to. But you know, I, I, I want, I want to know is, is this Cardi B record good? You know, I, when I go to Pitchfork or, you know, is this, you know, whoever record good, that's all I care about. I don't care who's tweeting what or anything, you know, right. like I, I just want to hear good records. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to contextualize an album, like, you know, in the time that it's coming out and certainly some albums artists fully intend to you know for its listeners to be in the moment yeah. and be thinking about what's going on in society i mean that's their their intent but as a review you know that you're that you're writing you're writing something that you know you hope in 3 4 5 years somebody will pick up and you know be interested in this artist or this album based on the you know how you have reviewed the music and i think if they just sort of minimized a little bit of that you know social commentary and and, you know injecting their own sort of thoughts into that sort of thing i i think it would be better i I think it's still important to to mention you know certainly like keep things in there i mean sure there's no you know if if you're reading the kids see ghost review you should know that like this is a time when kanye was you know wearing a maga hat all all the time i mean that i think that's (laughs) no um but is it though because the entire review but I think it is important because it was like, you know, there's something about, we've talked about this before, of course, it's a new podcast, so I shouldn't say that, but um, <laughs> that like the lead up to my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy yes, yes, contributed go. yeah. to it being a classic. I mean, yep. a lot of classics, they come at this like moment, you, but, know, I, you know, just some of the ones we've talked about, like the blueprint was like Jay-Z's like artistic comeback, you know, there's like just this you know, it's the debut of Kanye West as a producer and all this, you know, it's like a new sound. There's, there's gotta be this context there that to sort of elevate it. I don't know if it's always necessary, but I do agree with you, uh, uh, especially with like dark twisted and stuff. But does that mean in, you know, 50 years or something when, you know, our grandkids discover my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, do they have to read a book about it to like, you know, before they listen to, to know, or can they just, you know, pick it up and, and well, say I, this is a great record. I think it enhances the experience. It's just like, it's the no, same. No, it definitely right? enhances to it. read about the Beatles, right? No, I mean, there's That's a difference. True. And I always think about this, like when I, you know, like not that I'm like crazy about Led Zeppelin anymore, but you know, like when you put on, you know, cause when I was a kid, I was listening to like a lot of classic rock, you know, when I'm in high school. And then it was like one day it kind of clicked. Rockist, that like, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of clicked, you know, that the first Led Zeppelin album came out in what? 68. Mm-hmm. And I was like, thinking about what the rest of music sounded like in 68, you know, I wasn't comparing it to like all of classic rock. I was suddenly like, holy shit. In 68, this must've been the heaviest thing that anybody ever heard. I mean, nothing is heavier than this in 1968. And it really did deepen my appreciation for it. I didn't maybe need to know it to enjoy it. I don't think you would need to know anything about Kanye to enjoy my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, but knowing about the stuff he was going through, the Taylor Swift stuff yeah. and blah, 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 the death of his mother, that's only going to enhance. No, I agree that it enhances. I mean, I, 
I, I love reading books about, you know, every little, you know, music thing and, and everything. But, like, you don't, it's not 100% necessary, you know? You you can, I, th- I feel like the first time I listened to Led Zeppelin 1, I didn't know anything about them. And, you know, now I know more. And, sure, maybe that's enhanced it. But I could still see that it was a good record before yeah. I even, you know, knew who it was. Well, that is kind of interesting, actually, because I feel like if you didn't... Um, Anybody who didn't like Kids See Ghosts, if you listen to it without knowing the context, you would probably like it. Exactly. You know? And then, yeah, exactly. In that case, the context is going to actually make it worse. <laughs> like back. Um, <laughs> yeah. Very true. Um, maybe that, that that might be actually a, a good topic for another podcast. Um, but um, you know, and then I think we can sort of switch actually to the thing you brought up earlier, Dan, which is that uh, the clickbait type of stuff. Now. Uh, in continuing to diagnose Pitchfork, what's wrong with it? Another major culprit is, um, you know, Condé Nast, as everybody knows, purchased Pitchfork in 2015. It's a mass media company that owns stuff like GQ, Vanity Fair, uh, some golf magazine, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, I think they bought it for like $50 million. Um, Damn. So a little while after that or maybe like a year after that or so um founder and editor-in-chief ryan schreiber announced he would be departing and actually just days ago he finally completely departed from you know his baby pitchwork that he made um and i, I want to say the pitchwork is probably wholly his his vision you know speaking of uh tours um so it's really an incredible accomplishment but he's jumped ship and a lot of other people have jumped ship since then and actually i was reading about this today um you know, Pitchfork after the purchase started to take sort of a. It did this big site redesign and everything, and and the the clicks started to actually the daily visitors started to sort of slump. Um, and since then, they have amped up the, you know, lists the lists we've been talking about. But they also do stuff like, you know, just every you know just often they would do like best IDM albums, best ambient albums, you know. Best Pacific Northwest album. You know, just mm. lots and lots of lists because people click on lists. That's why they would never do, even though it actually kind of makes more sense to do a 60s list with no numbers. They would never, ever do that. Um, there's a lot of news about, like, shows and movies oh, for some reason. Things. It's God. Yes. <laughs> it's transitioning into, like, one of those kind of lifestyle brand type mm-hmm. of uh, things. There's, like, sponsored content, you know, like five beers to pair with whatever sponsored by you know goose island or you know shit like that a bunch of coverage of stuff that you know used to be very anti-pitchfork like the grammys or the oscars or whatever um so does does anybody here disagree that that has made uh, a, a major effect you know had a major effect on pitchfork's quality oh i i, I wholeheartedly agree you know if i want to I, I i don't want movie news from pitchfork you know unless it's like johnny greenwood is soundtracking you know the soundtrack to this rec you know movie otherwise i don't i don't care i don't care about stranger things from pitchfork the top story right now is about the super bowl uh you know those are just things i don't go to pitchfork for you know um yeah if i were to sort of put like a business cap on just for a moment you know i i want to at least give pitchfork maybe the benefit of the of the doubt here clearly they have diversified they have tried to broaden their reach and maybe that was because there were fears that they would not be able to survive you know um just as a as an outlet if they were to continue on the way they had they had back in 2005 or whatever maybe there just was not a future 
financially. Who knows? But um, there, you know, to me, Condé Nast was looking for more clicks because more clicks meant ads, which means you know revenue. Mm-hmm. And right. That's kind of the bottom line, unfortunately. Um, and maybe you know. If we, if we, if we, if it was up to us, and of course we would remove the whole condiness out of it, maybe we wouldn't have Pitchfork anymore. Who knows, right? Maybe I kind of feel like they were selling high. You know, they were like, "This maybe. is the yeah, highest. Yeah. This is the biggest it's going to be. Let's jump out." Um, and you know, f- fine. But what, what's what's resulted basically is that you know we talked about how Pitchfork used to be an alternative music magazine. It used to show you things you didn't know, but people don't really click on that. You know, dedicated music obsessives click on that. What normal people click on is stuff they already know. So that's why all of Pitchfork's lists and all of Pitchfork's reviews, they just sort of confirm just contemporary culture. You know, Cardi B is popular. She is good. You know, Beyonce is popular. She is good. Um, you know, it's just Ariana Grande, whatever. Throw in a little stuff to kind of maintain their credibility. And in fact, I um, I read something that was like... Uh, Somebody from Cade Nas said that the reason they purchased Pitchfork was because of their millennial male readership, um, <laughs> which is very, very illuminating, I think. But um, they, so, you know, so that's why, you know, I, I remember I was looking, um, I recently subscribed to the the Wire uh, magazine, which is sort of like an experimental leaning magazine. And, you know, just when the, the end of the year list came out, I was, uh, looking on Twitter to see if anybody was talking about it or whatever. And I saw a couple of people making the same joke, you know, um, something like, wow, I, I looked at the wires list and I've only ever heard of, you know, like two things on it. And, you know, they were saying like, like that's a negative thing. And I was like, that's, that's the most exciting thing to me. That's why I, I, you know, wanted to read it, it was because, uh, I want to learn all this new stuff, you know, that's not that's not typical. And I think in today's world, people are used to they click on a list, an end of the year list, so that it will sort of confirm their opinions. You know what I mean? That this is all exactly. this all has to be a result of Condé Nas purchasing. No, it. exactly. I mean, because you know, people people want to go on Reddit or or Mew or you know whatever forum and one bitch about the list and two. Uh, you know, gloat about the you know whatever artists they like being in the top ten or being number one right, or, right. or whatever. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I I want to click on a year end list or you know a best rap albums of the year. You know whatever. I want to click on that and find all the stuff I've never heard. And you know, I I recently subscribed to the Wire too because you told me about it, and I've had I've had <laughs> yeah. their end of the year list, which I did. I only knew like three or four things on it. I've ha- I printed it out and it's in my desk at work and uh, you know I've been checking stuff I've been going through listening to the whole thing because that's what I want I want to find fifty new you know I just found a list of yeah. forty five records I've never heard of that that a publication says are, are fantastic you know I that makes me very excited and that's what I want and that's what I used to get from Pitchfork. Well, I, I am not ready to conform. So, <laughs> uh, we'll see what what happens in the future, but. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I guess the obvious question, and this might lead into one of the problems here, that we might be too old, <laughs> back in 2008, where there weren't really forums or reddits or things like that where people would go on and kind of argue about these lists, were there? I mean... Uh, the, yeah, I mean, there, there were. They we were should just say, though, the, the, culture, yeah. the culture that, we, that, that, you're just, that you just described 
was not a culture that was around in the old pitchfork days. Okay. Well, I mean, a couple of things is that, you know, one, I guess we should clarify that pitchfork has always really been aggressively about brand building, mm-hmm. you know, even when, you know, when, when we were young, you could say something like, oh, this is a pitchfork kind of band and everybody would know what you're talking <laughs> about. You know, yeah. like they really built like a, a identity yeah, and yeah, they yeah. aggressively, you know, grew by putting out really controversial content, you know, um, their lists became legendary because they were so irreverent. Um, you know, that they, they've always sort of been about that, but now it's become a little bit more about clicks, which maybe the reason that that is, you know, clicks are better than controversy nowadays, you know, because of the digital changes that you mentioned, Darren. Um, you know, at the same time, I think that, God, I had such a great point. I hope I didn't lose it forever. <laughs> I think that, um, got to repeat your question. What was it? Oh, yeah. Are we getting old? I mean, no, it didn't bring it back. <laughs> are we out of touch? Uh, no, it's the kids who are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Maybe it'll come back to me. But I was going to mention that, you know, when it comes to clicks and things like that, the Oscars, you know, have this constant problem where nobody watches because nobody's seen the movies. Mm-hmm. You know what I yeah. mean? Uh, they're always saying that and the ratings are always declining. And so they 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 toyed around with, you know, bringing in this, um, you know, best popular movie um, category. Blockbusters, yeah. Yeah, for the blockbusters so that they can get those people to watch. Now that's, so basically what the Oscars are doing is like resisting the transformation that Pitchfork has already accepted, you know, which is like, we want to maintain this kind of dignity of like, these are serious films, this is serious art. It's not to be confused with a fun, you know, popcorn type of movie. Um, And, you know, what they're, you know, eventually I think poptimism is going to hit because of the current climate, the current world. Um, poptimism is going to hit, you know, the movies. And it kind of is already happening. You know, people are talking about like A Star is Born, like it's an actually good movie, which it almost certainly isn't. I haven't seen it, but I would put anything on that. Um, it, it was a good movie. I, uh, of course you <laughs> did. talk about that later. <laughs> oh, Lord. But, you know, but then I was thinking about like, you know, what if, if poptimism hit like food, you know, foodies, it would be like, Chili's is actually really good. You know, because people people know chili. They can't go to this like Michelin star restaurant, but they've all gone to Chili's, so they'll click on this article I wrote. You know what I mean? No, that that's good. I I do love McDonald's a lot, so I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> right, okay. best I'm in. best new I'm value in. meal. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm in. <laughs> okay, another problem could be um, Pitchfork copycat sites and all these competitors. You know, stuff like Tiny Mixtapes quietus stereo gum noisy the needle drop um you know the stuff that's sort of come out in pitchfork's wake and i think i already know the answer to this question but is it even possible for there to be such a dominant voice i think this is what i was going to try to get at darren the point i forgot which is that you know the times have changed where you you know pitchfork just happened at this perfect moment where the internet was becoming a thing and people would argue about, you know, they would start to argue about reviews, you know, and actually it was for the first time possible to buy stuff that, you know, wasn't carried in, um, or illegally download rather stuff that wasn't carried in Best Buy. Pitchfork like was kind of right there at the right moment for this revolution to happen. That wouldn't have been possible before. Um, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. You know, 
Rolling Stone couldn't cover all, you know, some obscure records that were coming out because, I mean, even if they did, you might read it and say, oh, you know, shit, I really want to listen to that record. You go to your local record store and you're shit out of luck because they don't have it and that's the only one within 100 miles of you and you'll never have a chance to get that record. But now, basically anything you want, no matter how obscure is right at your fingertips if if you know where yeah. to look, you know? Um, and even now, you know, with things like Spotify and stuff, it's even easier. So, yeah, I think it is at, at the right right place at the right time. But, you know, uh, basically everything kind of works that way, you know? Certainly. I don't know. To be honest, I, I and we can, this will be a topic in the future, I'm sure, but things, the streaming music and stuff, I feel like is like ruining the way I have always wanted to listen to music in the sure. past and like ruining albums. Such and all an old stuff. man. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> I know. It's you guys remember I was the last one to join yeah, the really whole streaming yeah. thing. Hold on to my iPod. <laughs> I, I mean <laughs> isn't it crazy though? Like the the coincidences of things that have sort of lined up um in, in that sense is that like technology has you know, be, has come to it, at that time. Technology came to um, meet the needs of like this new Pitchfork audience, and Pitchfork just happened to be like the first. That's why I was kind of saying that there were so many um, sites at once. But also now, if we jump ahead to 2018, um, I just can't get over. I can't even figure out how to phrase this, but you know, Poptimism sort of becomes this dominant, you know, critical theory at the same time that Pitchfork is purchased by a basically mass media company and they have a vested interest in talking about mainstream pop. And it, it's like, like, you see what I'm saying? Like, is that a coincidence? Am I like, do I need to put like a tinfoil hat on? Like <laughs> if it's freaking me out that like, it just so happened, it's kind of like when um, I'm trying to think like, it's kind of like, um, you know how everybody wants like uh, restaurants to stop, like giving straws out, you know, yeah. like single use plastics or, or bad stuff. And like, that's good. It's definitely good to reduce the use of single use plastics. But then it, there's something funny about the fact that we're like, all the consumers are demanding that restaurants stop giving us free straws. You know, <laughs> like, They're like, okay, we don't have to buy straws. Okay, fine. Um, you know, it, there's something weird about that. And it's like a similar irony with Pitchfork where it's just like, at the same time that everybody's interested in pop, they're interested in writing about pop so that we'll click on it more. Like, you see kind of what I'm saying? I think I'm articulating it very bad. Yeah, I mean, I to go back to your original question, though, about, you know, can there be a dominant voice? Um, I mean, I feel like Pitchfork could have stood their ground and continued in the direction that they were originally headed in and could have done something more like what the Oscars did, are, are attempting to do um, by introducing in a much more segregated way i guess you know more of this clickbaity stuff more of you know their more conversations regarding what's going on in in mainstream pop culture you know either through some sort of subsidiary site or something totally different i don't know but you know the problem is like like we mentioned before this identity crisis where like they're still trying to be like the old pitchfork of like trying to show you brand new things you've never heard of and at the same time they're also trying to have be in the conversation of like mainstream pop media and unfortunately there's just not room to be able to like do all of that and be a dominant voice right i mean yeah i mean they traded they basically traded like high level engagement from people like us who would check pitchfork every day um 
and read the reviews and stuff like that. I eagerly await the review of these new upcoming albums. Mm-hmm. Um, they traded that for kind of low level clicks, you know, like quick, just glance at the score and leave. Yeah. But at yeah. least yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a numbers game. I, yeah. I tell you right now, Condé Nast probably hired in some, you know, consultants and they reviewed Pitchfork's data over the years. They're like, this Gabe Lonsberry guy spends like 30 minutes <laughs> right, on a single right. page. I mean, that's not that's not getting us anything, guys. You know? No, yeah, they right. don't. I know, they, yeah. They don't give a shit if you read it at all, you know, if you like it, you hate it. As long as you click on it and they get that ad revenue or, you know, and those numbers to sell more ads, that's well, yeah, they all need you they to jump about. through the site. They need you to click through mm-hmm. different pages over and over again, not sit on a single page and, and read, read through it, yep. an entire review. Exactly. They don't want you to do that. I, I right, bet if they right. could get a, if they thought they could get away with it, they would just put the number for, for the re, you know, review. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and and I just can't get over the the strange coincidence that optimism comes into vogue right as this is happening um and just you know there's just something so creepy about it i don't know but a couple um you know because then you can say that it's like they have an honorable you can be like they're selling out and now they're trying to say actually selling out is the honorable thing to do you know <laughs> like actually the only reason you don't want us to sell out is because you're a racist and a sexist you know what i mean um yeah. it, it's like this perfect just storm happened um anyway a couple other just last few things i wanted to ask you guys um which darren brought up earlier you know is it really pitchfork's fault i think we have to spend at least five minutes uh you know self self uh inspecting here where did one thing i thought of did indie just collide with the mainstream and now Indie is mainstream? I think so. I mean, you know, indie music and stuff, especially, you know, in the past, it was underground. You know, people use that term because it you couldn't find it, you know, on the streets. And now with the internet, you could find anything. So, you know, everything's sort of on like this kind of level playing field that didn't ever exist until, you know, just, just a few years ago. Um, and then, you know, things like Arcade Fire won the Grammy and, and everything. And I, I think indie really has collided with the mainstream um, completely. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm inclined to agree. You know, I think that um, things have, have shifted dramatically. If you guys remember our time in high school, there were certainly kids out there who thought of Modest Mouse as like this, you know, incredible underground you know, band. Yeah, I was one of them. Like yeah. float on, <laughs> float out, float on, exploded. They're like, oh man, like you know, what a bunch of sellouts, this and that. Like <laughs> I, I knew them before they were big. You know, does I, I does that sort of conversation even happen anymore? Like, I know, don't think so. And I genuinely feel like a lot of mainstream pop and stuff is like weirdly, especially in rap, is like weirdly, um, what I would call indie. You know, like mm-hmm. yeah. Frank Ocean is incredibly popular, but his music is weird. He doesn't get like you know? played on the radio, you know. No, does he? but even something like that, even something that does. I'm trying to think of like, um, you know, Future or something. I mean, it, like some there's something yeah. weird about Future. He's like barely speaking. He's just like sort of like <laughs> this like guttural like noise he's making. You know, it's like it's like Tibetan throat singing meets like and even just trap. I was joking then, by the way, but just <laughs> trap in, in general. It's so minimal. It's like so such like empty space it's like post-punk for rap you know or something Mm -hmm. i mean i really feel like mainstream music today is is pretty 
indie, which does make me think that, you know, because it used to be called alternative R and B. I think now we can just say alternative R and B is just R and B. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, I mean for sure. Uh, any like you know straight R and B anymore is you know the equivalent of, of of dad rock. You know it's you know Luther <laughs> right. Vandross making a record at at 84 <laughs> right. years old or whatever. You know, right, right. So I mean I think those are reasons to, you know, again do a little a little introspection here and say that maybe maybe that's a, a reason for Pitchworks change even if it did hurt the quality um you know another thing darren you mentioned it did uh is there any chance that we're getting too old and out of touch and uh pitchfork and popular culture have just sort of moved on without us i don't really think so because i'm not just like pining for indie rock to come back i'm just really bored by all the mediocre stuff that they're bnming yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's that at all. I mean, like you said, I, I'm not pining for you know any sort of indie rock to come back, and I, I mean, I, I love rap, I love trap, um, but I don't love shitty things like cupcake, and you know, I, I I'm not interested in Casey Musgraves or. Oh my god! I thought know, we were gonna make the no, whole podcast without complaining about Casey god, Musgraves. I fucking hate that record so much. <laughs> um, more honestly, more than cupcake. It's just that's the problem. It annoys me. It's very so much. ordinary. Yeah, it's, it's, yes, it's extremely that's, uh, yeah, ordinary. I mean, it would be totally cool if you know. There's one line that stuck out in that review, or the the miniature review that they wrote uh, when it was the number two album, right? So, and it it was like she writes about what was it? Something country related, but then also acid. And <laughs> you know, you know, I, I listened to the record, and maybe there was a line or something about acid. I suppose you know, because there's that song that's called. Um, uh, God, I can't think of it. But anyway, like the point is, no, it's not an album that like would trip you out or anything no. really acid related. And also, what is it? Fucking Basically, 1968. Like people have heard <laughs> of acid by now, you know, it's I not. Know. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm just so sick of like all these, this is what I felt like our, our old podcast was becoming is every review was like, Basically, what it came down to is it's pretty good for a blank. Yeah. You know, I'm so sick of shit like that. Mm -hmm. Like Casey Musgraves is pretty good for a country pop album. You know, fucking Black Panther is pretty good for a comic book movie. (laughs) Yeah. Can I I get something that's actually good? Exactly. Actually good is what I'm I'm missing. And and to bring it full circle, like we were talking about before, something like Robin, like there is pop that is good. We don't need to force in all of this shit. And I, I, I cannot say... I could be delusional, but I, I refuse to say it. it's just because I'm old and I'm out of touch or whatever. You know, it, it just because music changed without me. No, um, <laughs> there is there there is enough good pop where if you are acclaiming shitty stuff, you know you you are that's selling out. I mean, you're yeah. you're claiming it so that people will click you're, on it and at, and argue about at it. At worst, you're selling out. At best, you're just too lazy to uh, you know look deeper. Yes, and there is like sort of a new surface level quality to Pitchwork, like we were also talking about earlier, that I do feel like they used to go a lot deeper. Um, they, well, I, I mean, I, again, you know, I know you guys don't like the sound of it, but, I, you know, things have changed so dramatically. Like, you know, I, I think about my my son, my oldest son, right? He's He's in eighth grade now, and... I think about when I was in eighth grade, it was like right, I was right on the cusp of like starting to listen to like Nirvana and all that kind of stuff. And, uh-huh. you know, having my CD and like the one album that I was just going to listen to the whole day and stuff. God. Like that, that concept is so, so foreign to him and all his <laughs> friends and everything. It's like, 
you know, oh, check out this, you know, Skrillex song on this, on this, you know, playlist or whatever. Heard it on Fortnite, whatever, whatever. Like, you know, that's, that's how they're like, they're consuming music or or hearing about it. It's, it's, it's almost like the concept of an album, like sitting down and just listening to a single record. It's just completely foreign. I mean, and and I fear that it's only going to get worse. It's crazy. Like, I mean, even... You know, I remember the same thing, but having picking one album for the whole day. If you told me today that I could only listen to one album in the whole, like I would have to listen to that same know, album like over and over, I would just not, I would just not listen to anything. You know, that was, that, <laughs> yeah. it'll, it'll like be annoying. funny because <laughs> it'll, it'll actually be funny because, you know, we talk about how it's hard for us to take an album seriously that doesn't work like as a large piece, but pretty soon it's going to be like, it's hard to take. Bob Dylan seriously because you have to listen to a bunch of songs in a row and it takes forever. You know, it really it's fucks like up your Drake. playlist. <laughs> yeah, it's not like Drake where you can just listen to one you know song. You know, yeah. but that actually might legitimately happen. Um, but in that case, you know, again, Pitchwork is in a weird place because they still do album reviews. They still really right. privilege the mm-hmm. album. They still rank albums. Their biggest list is the albums list, and they still do stuff like. You know, I was going to mention this earlier. They still do stuff like uh, like Casey Musgraves. You know, they'll say the, they go this auteur theory route. They in their review, they make this big argument like she is brilliant. She wrote all this stuff. You know, she really, um, you know, she really like crafted this sound to create this certain mood. Or like Beyonce, they'll be like she is like this true auteur. Like she totally designed this whole thing. And then you'll be like, well. Um, you know, Nina Simone was barely present for like four of the songs on uh, her album. And they'll be like, well, that doesn't matter. That's very raucous of you to care that she didn't like write or even play on any, you know, like, yeah, they're not consistent. So they, they still have, yeah, they still have these biases and they're very inconsistent with the way they apply them, I think is, um, is another problem. So I don't know if you guys want to add anything. Is there any way to sum this up? Did we figure it out? What, what ruined Pitchwork? I don't think we figured it out. I don't. I don't know if. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we did. But we have to agree it's bad, could. right? We have to agree that it's it's it's. Bad. It's at least I think past it's over. Its prime. Yeah. I think you have to. Ryan yeah. Schreiber jumping ship is a very bad sign. The, uh, yeah, I think very, the purchase. It you know obviously it was a a major deal. You know the yeah. idea that uh, this mass media corporation came in probably like I mentioned with like their statistics and their numbers game, wanting to make sure that they could yeah. do whatever they could to. Uh, build revenue um, and the you know the thing that you lose with that obviously is a lot of authenticity right so yeah looking back I, I feel like w- they'll say that the Condé Nast purchase was the sort of end of Pitchwork uh, yeah. I feel pretty confident about that but saying that if Condé Nast would like to purchase this podcast for 50 million <laughs> yeah, certainly. it is for sale <laughs> certainly, yes. certainly next week we'll be discussing <laughs> yeah <laughs> God, you guys hear oh, that yeah. new Casey yeah. Musgraves record? It was, sure yeah. was great. Oh, it's great. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> I loved Infinity War. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's uh, enough time for, for, for this week. Um, the first podcast in the can, as they say in the, in the mm-hmm. biz. Um, so tell us what you think. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We uh, Maybe can read something on the air. Email us, popshieldpod at gmail.com. That's popshieldpod at gmail.com uh we're gonna do one episode every two weeks so we'll see you in two more or yeah two weeks from now um if you like the show help us out by subscribing leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast and stay connected on twitter facebook instagram youtube all that junk it's at pop shield pod and we'll see you next time see ya so long